morning once again. It's good to be with all of you. It hasn't been that long this time, so it's good to be back always. And I would ask you this morning to turn to the letter, James's letter, chapter 4. I'll read that first, verses 13 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Let me read verse 17 also. All such boasting is evil, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let us pray. Father, we pray now as we come to this part of our worship that we would see this preaching of the word as an act of worship, to listen carefully. I pray, Father, that I would exalt your name in what I say. Father, we pray that we would understand clearly the words, that we would embrace them by the work of your Holy Spirit in our minds and our hearts, and Father, that we would, by the work of your Holy Spirit in us, be able to put them into action in our lives. May you be glorified as a result of that, and we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, when you hear the word plan or planning, what comes into your mind? I know what comes into mine. Given my vocation and the kind of research I do, I have visions of Soviet Union-style 5, 10, 20-year plans dancing in my head. Plans on the, or the idea of, a central, of central planning by government. Now, that's more of a nightmare than a, than a, a vision, but uh, that's what I think about when I think of plan and planning oftentimes. You might not have such unpleasant associations with the words. Some of you may simply be thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow. Nothing wrong with that. Or this week, or what you plan to do this summer. Some may think of a business plan or a growth plan. And still others, teachers, might think of a lesson plan. So, so far I sound like some kind of a motivational speaker. I don't mean to sound like that. about to tell you... um, what fantastic new plan I have for your lives that can make you uh, wealthy and famous. Well, that's not the point. Uh, let me alleviate that any, any lingering fear you might have regarding that. It's only in a very limited sense in this sermon that there's any motivation, though it is intended to exhort all of us to live a particular way according to God's will. Besides all that, we're going to be looking at explicitly at the scriptures to find out what God says about how we think about the future. So we'll see principles from God not intended to make us well off, as we might understand that, but to make us people who actually glorify God. That's the purpose of this. And just to say something about the text itself, though this text has a specific example in mind, which we'll see in a moment, and you probably have all heard it before, It has a much broader application to many different kinds of issues. So keep that in mind as I go through it this morning. We'll be interested in planning something that most humans think about sometime or other, and that preoccupies many other people. 
We want it to preoccupy us in the sense that we do God's will as a result. We want to understand what God has to say from his perspective on these issues. So first, let's take a a grand tour, a, a big tour, broad tour, through the book of James. The letter was written somewhere around 48 to 50 AD. We can't be sure the exact year, but it's very close. One of the earliest letters written in the New Testament. Probably by the brother of Jesus, that James. There were several Jameses mentioned, but many scholars, and in fact, I would argue the majority of scholars would argue that it's the brother of Jesus. That conclusion would explain, by the way, the style of the book. It uses a lot of the way of of speaking, the way of writing that Jesus would have spoken. We can see that throughout the book if we read it as a whole. It also has a wisdom tone to it. There's a, a good deal of practical wisdom, gems for us from God in, in, in ways that we could live, practically speaking. Some of the particular themes, for example, that you probably have heard, perseverance in trials, very practical. Wisdom, very practical. Temptation, how to deal with it, very practical, how to understand it. Faith and works, how do faith and works go together? Partiality, or the, the uh, uh, abstaining from showing partiality is what it's all about. The tongue, how we use our tongue in speaking, that's very practical. Uh, conflict, why it arises, for example. Uh, warning to the rich, could be very practical for the rich. Not just for the rich, though. Those who might aspire to become rich, be a good warning to them, too. Patience, and finally, prayer. All of those have an extremely practical, theological, practical application for us in the book of James. The issues covered by James are practical, and in fact, James as a whole is the most practical book in the whole New Testament, arguably in the whole Bible. It's about living out one's faith, not talking about it, not getting a theology of it, that's the foundation, but then going on from there and living it on the foundation, built on the foundation of the theology. Some scholars say that we cannot find a continuous and unifying theme besides that very broad practical bent of the book. In general, I think they're correct. It's hard to find a single theme in the book. James, I think, is to be understood like a strand of pearls. It has isolated bits of wisdom. They're different. They fit together in terms of their practicality, but they're all to be taken differently for different kinds of situations. That's not bad. It's like Proverbs, in a way. Proverbs is the same way. It consists of a, 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 ver- a text here, a text after that, a text after that. They don't necessarily have the same thing, but they all go together in terms of helping us live a life practically oriented towards serving and glorifying God. That's what I think James is like. For our text, we have James 4, 13 through 16. That means we understand it mainly on its own terms, without the surrounding verses. We really don't have to worry that much about the surrounding context. In fact, it's pretty easy to grasp the meaning without anything else. It's a very easy, clear way, uh, type of text. And James is very clear in many respects. So let's look at the passage itself. As we look at it, let's begin to think of how it might apply beyond the immediate example of the people here in, this, in these verses. So let me begin with verse 13, and I'll read it again for us. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make 
and, and trade and make a profit. So who are these people? They're businessmen, pretty obviously in the example. And James kind of begins his, his, uh, his text here with a little bit of implied rebuke by saying, come now. You think he's going to tell us what they think they're going to do, but he's implying here at the beginning, now you need to rethink this. Come now, you who say. Be careful before you say that too quickly, is what he's, what he's implying here in those first two words. And we could easily see how he would say that to us today if he were here. Same kind of thing. Then he identifies the kind of people he has in mind. Today, tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a city. We'll trade. We'll make a profit. Clearly, again, business people. Now, does that mean we have to stay with business people in our application? Not at all. This extends to anyone who would have the same kind of attitude, same kind of disposition that these people might have. It just so happens he chose, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, business people in this example. And the verse tells us something about both their actions and their attitude. Their actions pose no problem in themselves. Let's get that straight right from the beginning. What they do is not the problem. The fact that they go to such and such a city, the fact that they trade in that city, the fact that they make a profit is not an issue. That is not immoral in itself. Not at all. It would not be wrong to plan and even to plan and to expect to spend a certain amount of time in the place where you're going after you're planning. Let's go back for a moment and set the foundation for that, the fact that this is not wrong in itself. Back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. If you'll turn back there with me. And we'll see that it's not so much the actions, but it's the attitude. Genesis 1, 28, and then I'll come over to um, 2, 15 in a moment. Genesis 1, 28. Let me start with verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, we were made in the image of God. We're made in some sense, in some way like him. And we have been called to have dominion over the earth, implying activity with a purpose. We're made to be beings that have purpose in life. That ultimate purpose is to glorify God. But in doing that, we have means that are intermediate to glorify God. Various kinds of callings and vocations, all of which are legitimate, if they're not immoral or illegal, to glorify Him. So it's not wrong to engage in that kind of behavior. Not at all. More specifically, man was made to work, to be creative, to be productive. Look with me at at Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So why did God put Adam in the garden in the first place? To work it, to keep it. That implies not just um, keeping it exactly the way it was. It implies improving it, making it better. And likewise, we we can see that application for us today. God made us to work in such a way that we make the things around us better than they were for his glory. So there's nothing at all wrong with what the businessmen were doing here. The problem came in their attitude. Let's go on and see how that works. Notice the attitude of more, 
of more than mere confidence or optimism. I want you to notice the tone in which this is said by these people. Let me read it again for you. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, and make a profit. What's the problem with the attitude behind this? And it'll be, it'll be shown for us in more detail and more explicitly later on in the text, but it seems they're making their plans in the absence of any thought about God. Where is God in this statement? Where is God in this assertion? Where is God in their plan? He seems to be missing from all of that. They're thinking like they, like any sinful person might think after the fall, the autonomous man who doesn't feel the need for God. Now, we think that immediately about non-Christians, but let's not fool ourselves. Christians can fall into this trap too sometimes of thinking like the autonomous man, the one who says, I'm independent of God. I really don't need God. I don't feel his need right now. This is particularly true when we work in the world and we get embedded in our situations in the world and our vocations and our callings and we we think well the way the world does it is fine that's that's wonderful plans that they make things seem to work out okay and so why worry about god in this let's just follow the worldly wisdom that we have out there or so-called worldly wisdom well this is a significantly bad attitude i have to say this attitude which is at the heart of man's conflict with god began with adam and eve even we can see it in satan before Adam and Eve, that same kind of attitude. Look for a moment with me at Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, and you'll see what happened there and the problem that we have as a result of that. Genesis 3, 4 through 7. And again, this is familiar territory for us, but it bears repeating. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, that is the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Interesting. Now, stop here a second. Whether Satan was exactly right about that in all of its possibilities is not the point. The point is what she said to the woman, the woman bought into. That's the point we're going to see in just a second. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We know the fall here. We know the action that took place. They took the fruit. They ate the fruit. But the problem is more than that. Even before they ate the fruit, notice their attitude. They're already being drawn toward the possibility of being like God, being the autonomous person, being their own independent self to do whatever they wanted to do to follow their path, which they thought would lead them to their own utopia, if you want to call it that. They've already sinned in their hearts, in their minds. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to exist and live without the need for God Now, God could possibly hinder what they planned for their lives. But likewise, the businessmen in James 4 exhibit the same disposition, the same kind of thinking. We're going to do what we're going to do, not worrying about God, what he might have to say about that. So let's go to verse 14, and we'll see it even more, even clearer in verse 14. Verse 14 reads, Yet, James writes, 
You do not know what tomorrow will, will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Here we get to the heart of the problem, or begin to get to the heart of the problem, implied in verse 13. The first major problem is that no one knows the future. Does any one of us know the future? Even for the next second, do we know the future? We might try to plan what we think the future ought to be. We might try to control the future by our planning, but we can't know it. We don't, we don't control it in, re- in reality. We certainly don't know what the entire, our entire life will bring. There's no way we could know that. As the verse tells us, in comparison with eternity, we're just like a mist. We're nothing. And it isn't as if we, we just need more information or better technology. Have you heard this? We just need better information, more of it out there, and better technology to store it and to give it to us when we need it. That will solve all of our problems. We can then plan everything out and control our futures and know what's going to happen and not worry at all. Just go about our lives looking for our own way, our own particular way of flourishing in our own minds. Well, I've got news, and God says this news, even with supercomputers. The plain fact is that no human being can ever know with any certainty what will happen at any given moment. It's simply impossible. Only God knows that. Such knowledge is simply not open to us. It's only open to God. Only open to God. He alone has that kind of knowledge that is both perfect and comprehensive. God knows everything at once, everything in the future, everything in the present, completely and completely accurately, with no errors whatsoever. That's God, but that's not us. That's what James is trying to tell us. Because he is God, he deserves to possess that kind of knowledge. And it is here that the problem really becomes major. If we look at verse 15, let's follow the the, the line of reasoning that James James follows here in verse 15. Instead, instead of saying, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll make a profit. Instead of being like that with the attitude that I don't need God, he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, we should say. Now, this, this, when he says this, that you should say if the Lord wills, he doesn't just mean uh, something like a, a little saying we say to ourselves each morning or after, or after we decide we're going to do something. We don't just say, I'm going to do such and such if the Lord wills. Okay. If we don't mean that, it's, it's useless to say that. We have to mean if the Lord wills. We have to consider the Lord's will in our planning. We have to consider God in what we do. Otherwise, it's just, a, just another little uh, phrase that we, we often say. Like, bless you, or something like that, if the Lord wills. Not only is our knowledge of the future non-existent, but in spite of that, we have a tendency to insist that we can know the future. And verse 15 tells us that that's wrong. It begins, if the Lord wills, we should say that. Clearly, what was wrong was the complete absence of any consideration of God's will or God's word. That's the problem, the heart of the problem right there is the attitude, not the actions, but the attitude behind the actions. We ought to say, we ought to think if God wills. We ought to think it, believe it, embrace it, if God wills. Now, this does not prevent us from planning. Let me, let me uh, uh, um, um, correct any misunderstandings here. What is intended, what's it, what's it, what it's intended to do 
is to remind us to consider God in our plans so that we don't become autonomous in our minds, thinking we can plan everything out on our own, to do everything on our own without consideration of God. That's the purpose of this. So how do we do that then? How do we accomplish this? First, even while we plan, before we act, we should cultivate the disposition of mind and heart that's prepared to accept God's will for the results. That's the first thing we ought to do. Prepared to accept God's will for the results. We can plan, yes, plan all we want. Although we should know that there are limitations to, our, to planning, period. And that's a problem that everyone faces in various situations in life. But God may change our plans, no matter what, what they are, no matter how good they are. Even if they're, they're, they're made with God in mind, he may change them at some point. Are we willing to let God be God? Are we willing to be, let God be God? Or are we going to insist on our way? Or we could just reject him, as some do. Notice that it is God who determines even whether we will live until tomorrow. Even whether we will live till tomorrow. It's God who determines that. This is the sovereign will of God. This is the sovereignty of God at work. And here's where Christians even get hung up. They can't accept God's sovereignty. They don't embrace God's sovereignty. Part of it is they don't prepare for God's sovereignty. They're not thinking in terms of the possibility that God's sovereignty may completely overrule what they plan. We need to plan for that ahead of time. Expect the possibility ahead of time. Embrace the absolute sovereignty of God in our lives. That's the first thing we have to do. Have the right disposition to accept what God says in changing our plans when we're making them. Secondly, in our planning, we should always take account of God's will as it is expressed in his word. This is in the actual making of the plans, the content, the substance of the plans that we make. Obviously, we should never engage in illegal or immoral activities. That stands to reason. We never do that. And by the way, immoral is defined by Scripture, not by us. Illegal is defined indirectly by Scripture by saying that if you disobey the law, you're in essence disobeying God. So we don't do what's illegal or immoral. That's foreclosed to us. But more than that, there's much in Scripture that will enable us to make the kinds of decisions that will glorify God. In every vocation, in every calling, to think substantively in, in the content of our decision-making. How will this glorify God? Is it a plan that will glorify God? Is the content of it something that will glorify God? It ought to be self-evident that every decision we make should be made with the aim of glorifying God. In practice, however, this is easy to lose sight of. Humans have sort of an exalted view of themselves, they have an exalted view of their powers of reasoning, for example. We've been taught that if we just use more of our reason, better, that everything will be fine. We can plan for the future, make everything come out right the way we want it to come out. We can control our destiny. We can control the world. That's not what taking dominion meant, by the way, in Genesis chapter 1. It didn't mean we can control the world. It meant we can work with God to ha take dominion in the world to make it a better place while we're here, but not that we have the absolute control of it. We don't. No matter how good our reasoning powers are, we cannot do that. Only God can do that. On the other hand, 
human beings have always also had a problem, and that is the desire to assert their own wills and therefore to ignore God. This is not a matter of reasoning power. This is a matter of wanting to do what God wants us to do. It's one thing to say, well, I, I agree that God's right on this. The Bible tells me this is, this is good and this is bad. I should plan it this way, not that way. But I don't want to. That's our problem. Adam and Eve had the same problem. They didn't want to. Didn't want to follow God. Well, the obvious way to ensure that we know God's will is to know his word, to know it well, particularly as it impacts our various vocations and callings that we have. But that's only half the equation. The only way to actually do this will, to actually carry it into effect, to put it into effect, is by the power of his Holy Spirit. We are incapable on our own of doing that. We need his Holy Spirit to work in our lives. But let's move on to verse 16, finally here. James puts the the, the finishing touches on this text. As it is, he tells them outright, as it is... As it stands right now, as you've said, as your attitude shows, you boast in your arrogance. Well, if it wasn't clear before, it's clear now. Very clear. If we didn't know it, we know it now. The desire for autonomy is itself rooted in arrogance or pride. And we all suffer from some degree of that problem in our lives. Arrogance is in turn a moral vice condemned by the Bible, clearly, essentially says, I am greater than God. That's what it says, plain and simple. I am greater than God. And James is fairly direct here. Boasting, as these people did, is equivalent to arrogance. Because the boasting, behind the boasting, was their attitude. And their attitude was pride. Now, I didn't read verse 17 before, but I'm going to read it now because I think it puts the finishing touches on this in a way that the rest is sort of incomplete without it. He says, so what? whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Verse 17, very clear. We, If we know the right thing and we don't do the right thing, it's sin. Now, the right thing in this case was to develop and cultivate the right attitude and then work that out in the plans, the activities that we engage in. That's knowing the right thing. And then to do it in our daily lives. James might have added another verse, another verse in this, in this uh, text right here even. Something like, which is implied in verse 17. Now you do know what the right thing is to do. By God's grace, he says, impliedly, begin to do it. Now again, we can't do it on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to enable us to do those things that we're called to do the right way. But we have that grace to help us. And so let's sum all this up together, and and I want to make the broader application, again, to remind us this is not just about business people in a specific setting. It's about much more than that. The text is an illustration, an example of a much larger issue that we all face. Non-believers, of course they face it, but even believers face this temptation, the temptation to be the autonomous person, to say to God, yeah, I really don't need you in this situation. Now, if, if somebody confronted us with that and said, you don't seem to need God, we would deny that vehemently. We would say, of course I need God. Of course, don't tell me I don't need God. I do. 
but it's lost on us in the heat of the moment sometimes. We just don't think about it. We get, we get into the world, we get into what we're doing, we get into what everybody else says about what we should do, the way we should do it, how we should think about it, and we lose sight of what God says, both about how we should think about it, what our disposition should be toward it, and about the actual content of our plans. We may act, we should act, we should plan. We're productive people. That's, our, that's part of our makeup as being made in the image of God. We're supposed to be creative, productive people, innovative people, but always for the glory of God. And that means taking into account God's will and God's word in trying to determine what that looks like. And until we understand that fully, we're all going to be deficient to some extent in glorifying God. I pray that each of us will take this message to heart and begin the process of doing what's right in God's eyes. Let's pray.